Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Are cancer drug costs a problem? Of course. And oncologists can do more to impact them, said Dr. Michael Kolodze, who was the keynote speaker at the American Journal of Managed Care's annual patient-centered oncology care meeting, which was held in November in Philadelphia. Dr. Kolodze is the current vice president and chief innovation officer at AdV Health. Prior to his current position, he worked for Flatiron Health and spent three years at Aetna. In this interview, recorded at the end of the first day of PCOC, Tori Fields, senior program manager at Blue Shield of California, and Dr. Kolodze discuss the move to value-based care in oncology, what practices need to do to be successful, and the role of team-based care. Mike, thank you so much for your keynote presentation here today. My pleasure. Um, I firmly believe that oncologists need to be at the center of creating their own solutions as well. Well, yeah, I think that uh, if we recognize that they may be the linchpin in execution, um, and and fundamentally, I I believe actually they they really do have their patient's best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. Um, As we move forward, that will uh, lead to the highest likelihood of success. I completely agree. I want to talk a little bit about what we hear in terms of value in cancer care. That term value is very heavily weighted, and you hear it so often. Um, How do you think we can get to a consensus about what the value means in in improving value in cancer care? So, So I think, let's start with the traditional stock answers. Value depends on perspective and different stakeholders uh, in the cancer ecosystem will intrinsically have different perspectives of value. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think although there may be individual cases where that's true, as a general rule of thumb, there's, there's more alignment than I think people actually will we'll give credence to or credit to. I, at, at the end of the day, most physicians want to make sure that they um, both do the best they can for their patients and are mindful of their patients' desires and wishes. Mm-hmm. And if you, ass- if you have that as your predicate, then value really reflects uh, trying to optimize the outcome given the resources that are at your disposal. So the economic discussion about value, um, the kind of discussions we have about pathways and stuff like that, um, the whole ICER stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, if we really were to be honest, the decisions that physicians make in collaboration with their patients are ultimately designed to optimize value. What's missing is perhaps some intellectual honesty on the part of of both physicians and patients and all other stakeholders about exactly what the benefits are, exactly what the risks are, and exactly what the costs are. Mm -hmm. Part of that is ignorance. Part of that is discomfort about 
having conversations about things that are really, really hard to talk about. So I, I, I honestly think that there's this misconception, in my opinion, that there's a misalignment between the value of um, most uh, providers, most oncologists, most care teams, and the patients they're managing. So now let's add payers. Mm -hmm. So everyone presumes that the, the payer somehow is operating on a different value construct. And there's a little bit of truth in that, and there's a little bit of non-truth in that. Now, mm -hmm. the truth part reflects the fact that payers are interested in population outcomes. So they have to worry about everybody that they're offering the health benefit to, mm -hmm. and they have to worry about a limited resource uh, and, and, and making judgments about that limiting resource. But honestly, I, when I was at Aetna, mm -hmm. I always viewed my goal as making sure that if it was appropriate for a patient to get a specific uh, treatment, that we did everything we could. That's not to say that, that every treatment that was requested was absolutely appropriate. Right. Uh, I mean, who am I to judge? Well, you know, there are, there are kind of rules of engagement, right? There's rules of the road mm -hmm. that determine whether or not a treatment is appropriate or not from the health plan perspective. Mm -hmm. And so again, I think there's not, so it's easy to focus on misalignment mm -hmm. and point fingers. There's more alignment than people give credit for, I think. Not that we can't get better. Got a lot of room for improvement. Uh, there is a lot of waste that is in the system. And we focus a lot on outcomes, on your classic outcomes, reducing total per capita spend as providers and as payers. And as patients, too, yep. uh, we look at reducing utilization cool. and inappropriate or unwanted treatments at end of life. Yep. All places where you can actually improve. Um, if we're looking at those measures, what are some of those metrics that we can yep. track in the interim so we know that we're actually on track to improving? Yeah. So I think the, uh, the metrics are probably simpler than we think, mm -hmm. at least conceptually, and more difficult than we think in terms of actual execution. So mm -hmm. uh, um, there's an incredible lack of communication and transparency among the various constituents in the healthcare system that has made it very, very difficult to understand, for example, the consequence consequences associated with a particular therapeutic decision from the patient perspective and from the healthcare ecosystem perspective. We need, we need to overcome that. There really are no patients who like going to the ER. There really are no patients who like having pain or toxicity. And in fact, from a more abstract perspective, there are no patients interested in futile therapy. Okay. So this whole concept that um, uh, a patient would make a therapeutic, uh, participate in a therapeutic decision and just opt for something uh, other than what they might perceive to be the most acceptable, most effective um, uh, treatment is absurd. It's absurd at face value. I, I think that the ability to capture the elements that contribute to the decision making mm -hmm. need to improve. And then they need to be available to physicians, 
and to patients at the time the decision's being made. We don't have that right now. Mm -hmm. What we have is clinical trial evidence, and what we have um, are kind of gross estimates of cost of care or patient-specific outcomes. This is not adequate, and mm -hmm. so, you know, when I was at Flatiron, the whole idea of trying to really better understand at a specific patient level what was gonna happen was really what we were all about. It, it really was the key to improving the care that was being delivered and, and improve the ability for a patient to make an informed decision about the right clinical path. Now ultimately, that information will feed back to the payment system uh, and will be reflected in appropriate reimbursement for those services. I think it may be that that occurs in an indirect fashion. So for example, uh, a payment uh, kind of moves towards an episode-based bundled reimbursement. And, and really, there are parameters of what appropriate looks like, mm -hmm. and the physician and patient together decide within those parameters what the best course of therapy is. Mm -hmm. There will always be patients that don't quite fit into that construct, for sure. I think most patients will, and hopefully there'll be better satisfaction <laughs> for all the stakeholders, and more importantly, a path towards, towards implementation of innovation which will really change the way we take care of cancer patients. Because we can't develop a system that is not responsive to innovation. Innovation, the idea that we might actually someday come up with cures for common malignancy, it's just so tantalizing. And, and so now in my new role, I get to talk to some of these life sciences companies that have got such really incredible, exciting stuff out there. And they're just worried about how they're going to survive in the universe forward. Mm -hmm. They will survive. And in fact, they'll thrive. Mm -hmm. But it won't be the models of the past. It'll be a different model. So if we talk about this tension a little bit in terms of moving from volume to value yes. and actually making more precise decisions, um, that gets into this tension of, acuity and risk, and then the feasibility of actually administering payment models um, that don't get patients and providers caught in the middle of some authorization processes. Yeah, I think uh, the authorization thing is, is gonna, uh, it's gonna die natural death. Um, maybe not, maybe not natural death. Um, no, I, th I think what happens, uh, a couple things have to happen. One is, I think, the, um, the ability to understand clinically relevant subsets of patients, which is dependent on the evolution of real-world evidence mm -hmm. and a rapid learning, uh, rapid learning healthcare system, as that has to occur for appropriate informed risk stratification. And then payment can follow in turn. And I do think it's inevitable that the payment following in turn will, will place physicians at some risk. Mm -hmm. Now, that's scary, right? That's scary now because physicians look at the oncology care model and they say, there is no way I'm going at risk with that baby because we think the math is fuzzy and we just don't believe it. I, I think if we kind of leapfrog to an, uh, a universe in which 
um, there's a, an episode-based reimbursement model and then the ability to apply good old-fashioned managed care rules regarding stop loss and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think most oncology practices will be able to function in that system. Now, the question is, are the individual care units, the practice in this case, big enough to be able to handle that risk? And the answer is probably not. Right. But I think um, uh, I would predict we will see evolution of kind of virtual supergroups that are more able to manage risk, that have, um, at least at their core, uh, uh, basic capabilities regarding care delivery, uh, a, f a fundamental acceptance of a certain model of care, uh, and, and that will allow them to manage that risk. In, in the current world, that cannot happen. The practice is too small. But if you get practices big enough, it can happen, I think. Um, so we'll see. So you and I both know from working at a payer yeah. um, and also working at large health systems that both claims-based uh, identification or understanding of risk, the acuity of patients in terms of risk scoring, yep. um, and also in our EHRs, which are really just billing mechanisms to get yeah. reimbursed from payers, don't have adequate information. No, they stink. No, they stink. <laughs> to really figure out what yeah. the acuity of yeah. that patient is. Right. So, can you talk a little bit about the en uh, the entrance of life sciences companies and yeah. um, and big data companies and how they might be able to help practices manage taking on risk yeah. and being a little bit more precise yeah. than their EHR. So I think it's going to be way more big data companies than it's going to be life sciences companies. Mm -hmm. um, I can easily see the emergence of, of a whole industry around that issue of um, uh, predictive analytics and, and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, we heard today from Flatiron and Coda and mm -hmm. IBM Watson wasn't there. We got to think about them and oh, Optum yeah. also doing it. You know, so there's a bunch of companies that are basically laying the groundwork for doing precisely what you said. Now, I'll tell you, my, my view is that at least some of them have been hindered actually by not having a constructive dialogue with payers. So they got one half of the equation, but the other half is this big black box. It's funny, the OCM has helped that a lot. Mm -hmm. I think um, the claims the practices have gotten from the OCM have really been profoundly impactful. Uh, even though I don't believe any practice in America knows what the hell to do with them, honestly, sure. they just have no clue. But um, but that that will change over time. And I, uh, if if you ask me to predict, um, look at your calendar, February first reconciliation period for the OCM. What happens as a consequence of that first reconciliation period mm -hmm. will be a, a rapid expansion uh, of interest in doing exactly what you just said understanding risk stratification better, developing clinical approaches to, uh, to modify risk uh, and improve outcomes, and then, and then measuring whether or not all that stuff you've done has made one whit of difference or not. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, it's a good story, right? Sure. But I think the, the question is, do, do we, are the tools that we are currently employing to uh, optimize care as best we know, mm -hmm. are they actually going to be the tools that in the end went out in the beauty pageant of improving care for cancer patients? Um, 
I'm a low-tech guy. Somebody said once that I was just a brute force guy. That's okay. I, it may be that. It may be more sophisticated than that. I think we'll have to wait and see. Uh, it's funny. I read about this new, um, this new monitor that allows you to tell whether or not you took your antipsychotic medicine. You read right. about that? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I think the question is, do really interesting technologies like that change the way care is delivered. And that, yeah. so it's a great time to be in oncology because there's it's a wealth of riches, right? So you just got to figure out, you know, what the right recipe is for a given patient. It's going to mm -hmm. be really fun. Very exciting. Yeah, there's so much technology, yeah, so, so much data that we get to play with and create new solutions. Uh, Who'd have with. thought it? Ten years ago, no one could have foreseen that we'd be at this point. I, I certainly did not. Ten years ago, I was fooling around with pathways, Seemed like a perfect, perfectly good idea. Nobody else was interested in them. We were just interested in them. Right. But now we've gone so much further than that. Um, it's going to change what a doctor does. And that was the message I had today. Really, mm -hmm. I think we need to get comfortable with saying, okay, we did it in the past. It worked pretty good for us. But now we're in a different time. Different tools. We have different therapeutic tools, different analytic tools. And we can actually do our job better if we actually embrace the change mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, I'm the doctor and I just know best. That's just, we just need to get past that. And I think we will. I, th I, think, um, I think it'll be just impossible not to embrace the, the, new, the, the new approaches to, to taking care of our cancer patients. And at the end of the day, it's going to make their care so much better, mm -hmm. so much better. With these, with these precision tools that are coming out mm. and analytic tools that um, providers can actually access now, where is the role for soft skills and actually improving uh, those? Yeah. So communication with your patients, making sure that your patient is sharing in that decision-making. We hear all of these buzzwords like shared decision-making and patient-centered outcomes. Um, can you talk a little bit about sure. that interplay? So I think there's, there's, no, there's no question in my mind that irrespective of how far the technology, analytics take us, ultimately, as I said in my talk today, the, the, exec, the, the implementation arm will always be the physician and the care team. Now, I, I, I want to be very, very precise in saying that I don't believe it's just the physician. Agreed. I, I feel very strongly that the care team, meaning the um, advanced practice practitioner, uh, I, meaning the um, nursing staff that works as a member of the team, the social worker that works as a member of the team, heck, the scheduler that works as a member of the team, mm -hmm. all of them need to be aligned in the direction uh, that the team is taking and they need to uh, function to the uh, highest level that their, um, that their role permits. Mm -hmm. um, I've had the great fortune in my career of working with just an awesome PharmD, a great nurse practitioner, uh, a great scheduler, great nursing clinic. So I, I think ultimately when we get to the point where we're good with that, patients will benefit dramatically. I mean, we talked today about about uh, lay navigators. Listen, um, if you've kept up with the literature 
regarding the benefit of navigation, mm -hmm. you'd be a fool not to embrace that. I mean, it just doesn't seem that there's any way that that's not good for everybody. Uh, it does not have to be a nurse. It's okay if it's a nurse, but nurses are expensive, and again, they have skill sets that exceed what a navigator needs mm -hmm. to do. That's not to say there's not a role for nurse navigators. There are roles for nurse navigators, but lay navigators, for the purposes of the kind of stuff we talked about, uh, I, just, I just have a hard time understanding why that's not something that people do. Well, something you should do. You also have to embrace the understanding of a nursing shortage in this country. Totally agree. And, and needing to shift some of that value to um, lay folks who actually are looking for employment, like community health workers. You see the rise of community health workers yep. in these navigator totally. positions as well. Yep. We're looking at shifting from volume, fee-for-service, yep. to value, something like an episode-based payment or alternative payment models. And a couple of times here today, there have been a has been a conversation about if you get better at value-based care, you start to see diminishing return. <laughs> And that leads to thoughts about how do we ration care, how do we actually shift from being incentivized on reducing utilization and the need to shift to, say, quality outcomes. Yeah, so I, I think you should remember, though, that um, as we think about at what level, for example, an episode-based reimbursement might be set, that level will be uh, set so that the majority of practices will succeed in delivering care. Mm -hmm. Now, if you accept that, if you do, do a good job, you're going to come in at a price point substantially lower than that, and you'll reap the rewards. Mm -hmm. now, the question is, how do we get from where we are now to that? And I think the answer is probably exactly what the OCM did, which is provide a management fee that allows the practice to invest as wise as they possibly can mm -hmm. in enhanced clinical services to execute. The problem really is that commercial insurance has a huge problem with management fees. So it's funny, when I was at Aetna um, and I wanted to give my practices a management fee, they said, well, you know, um, in our primary care medical home, the uh, monthly management fee is $5. And I thought, that's not going to fly. No. That's not going to fly. So um, I think commercial payers have a very hard time. Mm -hmm. um, there may be a way to execute on a management fee if we can convince the payers that there will be an accountability at the end of a performance period. And my personal opinion is that the, that the insurance segment that is most ripe for this is Medicare Advantage. Because mm -hmm. with Medicare Advantage, of course, the, uh, the health plan is going to get a certain amount of money mm -hmm. that they can spend however they want, um, as opposed to, for example, self-insured um, plan sponsors where management fees are just very, very difficult. Um, and they're both operationally difficult, but they're also difficult because there's just not much cancer in that population, right? right. So I think if, if we're looking at the next step forward, I think the next step forward might be looking at uh, approaches in health plans that have a large Medicare Advantage population or uh, a large fully insured population where the, the um, access to the premium dollar allows you to be a little bit more innovative in how you, how you spend it towards management. Mm -hmm. and, and, and slowly but surely as that success accrues, I think plan sponsors 
will want to get on board. Mm-hmm. Um, remember that to a great extent, all of this stuff that's happened with the OCM actually has two aims. It's aimed to improve the quality of care and to control the cost. Mm-hmm. And, and I think um, improving the quality of care, particularly if you can show it, uh, becomes a very persuasive argument for a management fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if, although you may not generate true savings, if you can mitigate trend, oh, that's, that gets to be a pretty attractive argument, in my opinion. Exactly. Um, what would you encourage physician practices, provider groups, oncology practices to do um, when a payer doesn't necessarily want to start out with giving a management yeah. fee but might want to pay out on the back end after a performance period? Yeah, that may be what you're stuck with, uh, mm-hmm. the truth is. Um, I think um, I'm a firm believer that just about every practice has room for improvement. Um, whether they're willing to admit it or not. Uh, I think, in general, the willingness to examine the processes of care and look for opportunities for improvement. Um, I think a commitment from a potential dance partner to share data with you is critical to improvement. It's very hard to improve in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, I think um, uh, I mentioned the three areas that I feel very strongly that there's there's opportunity. Uh, I think... uh, very small practices are going to have a really hard time with this. I think medium to larger practices, they're, they're pretty sophisticated. Uh, I think they can start looking at you know, the chemotherapy costs associated with certain subsets of patients. Mm-hmm. There's probably even specific areas within chemotherapy costs that deserve a little bit more attention, so supportive care, for example. Um, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, ask yourself easy questions. How do I answer the phone? <laughs> How do I manage same-day appointments? Um, there is no disadvantage to a practice uh, in figuring out a way to manage same-day appointments. Now, what I mean by that is this. I'm not suggesting that you keep slots open. Right. That's very difficult for a practice, especially smaller. But uh, think about ways you might solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in the practices that I've worked with, um, especially if they had multiple sites of service. Invariably, there would be one site that could handle that traffic mm-hmm. uh, of same-day patients. So that if you have a site of service that has one doctor, that's tough. Right. But if the patients can be routed to an alternative site, um, I had a practice that I uh, was working with that uh, had established a collaborative relationship with uh, an urgent care center. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's brilliant, right? It didn't cost them anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they just had a general agreement that um, after hours, uh, their patients would be seen there for triage purposes. And, you know, uh, if that facility is able to measure a CBC, that may be all you need, right? Mm-hmm. patient calls at 445 with a fever. You just need to know that CBC. That's, that, is, that is the critical data element that determines what happens to that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... Uh, there's some smart guys out there, smart gals out there that are going to look at the way we deliver in care and say, you know, if we just do this a little bit differently, I think we're going to improve how we take care of patients. And that, you know, I, we talked about triage just there, but that's, it's just not triage, right? It's palliative care, mm-hmm. end-of-life care. Um, it's, it, th- there are really, I think going to wind up being a handful of areas that deserve, deserve focus mm-hmm. and attention 
and over, I believe, a fairly short period of time, best practices will emerge. Thank you very much. My pleasure. To learn more about the Patient-Centered Oncology Care Meeting or to see coverage from the meeting, visit AJMC.com or visit the show notes.